Be prepared to be changed, challenged, awakened, and refreshed. Back by popular demand, Tent Theology is offering another online summer school this August. This summer, we'll be looking at the life and thought of Soren Kierkegaard. It is hosted by me, Stephen Backout. I did my doctorate on Kierkegaard and have published a number of books and articles on him. The online course will explore the amazing life and important ideas of this influential 19th century Danish rabble-rouser, who understood more than anyone the difference between being a Christian nationalist and being a follower of Jesus. The course involves discussion, teaching and guided reading. It will take place over the first four Mondays of August 2021. Each session will be based on selected passages, as well as the biography I wrote a few years ago entitled Kierkegaard, A Single Life. All the reading material, including a paperback copy of the book, will be provided. Over the summer, the weeks of reading and discussions proved to be some of the most invigorating weeks I'd experienced in years. And that's saying something since I started skydiving a few years ago. I strongly encourage, without reservation, anyone thinking of taking a 10th theology course to take the jump. For details, prices, and to register, visit the courses page of the Tent Theology website or email info at tenttheology.com. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Myron Penner. Myron, where are you joining us from before we uh, we go straight into all the getting the world to rights, talking about life, the world, and Kierkegaard and everything in between? Myron Penner, where are you calling in from? I can see Edinburgh behind you, but you're not in Edinburgh. Yeah, no, Edinburgh, this is masking uh, the disaster of the kitchen and dining room that I'm sitting in here at home as I work out of home. Uh, but I am, uh, and, and just so, uh, this is this was my college. This is the space that I, wa- I walked just to uh, this side of me. I walked out of the door uh, with a PhD, uh, okay. which is a really good feeling. <laughs> so you, you put um, uh, Edinburgh I'm... University up as your, your Zoom background, but you're actually living Yes, in... this is... Where are you now? I'm actually living in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, awesome. which is the northernmost city yeah. in North America. Yeah. Is it really? really? It is, yeah. It's more northern. I mean, than... full city. Full city. It's the largest northern city, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, we've got a million people, give or take a couple, depending on who's left the city today. But um, we're about a million people and we're sitting at quite a high uh, latitude. Now you are originally in Alberta. You've come back home. You're an Alberta boy, just like me, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. Were you born in Three Hills? Were you born in Three Hills as well? Or brought up. There? I was not. I was born forty miles away in Didsbury. Oh, Didsbury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to play them in hockey. We used to play Didsbury with ho- in hockey. <laughs> yeah, and volleyball and all that stuff. Yep. So you grew up uh, an Alberta boy, small town Alberta boy. I never really knew you. We grew up in the same, for listeners listening to this podcast, uh, Myron Penner and I grew up in the same town, but you're, you're older than me. So we know, I think you were one of the bigger boys. Just old enough that I was aware, actually, I have a memory of you and your brother uh, walking to school in front of me and you guys were fighting the whole way in the snow, in the snow. I I don't know why I have that memory of you, but I, because because uh, you lived right on that sidewalk right where we had to walk to grade school i know where you lived yes i remember your house yeah yeah That's and i remember funny. walking by and and I, you and your brother i just thought were so funny uh that's what but i was old enough that we were not peers and you know at those ages that actually means quite a lot you know uh, and i i don't know exactly how old, much older i am but it's probably like eight years or ten years that i'm older than you right so it's quite a big yeah. deal. If, if you're seeing little boys push each other around in the snow, you're not going to get involved in that. So. <laughs> oh, no. And I just remember thinking, oh, these guys are awesome. Because, <laughs> you know, that's what boys do, right? Now, this is now this is an interesting thing. I often uh, ask my guests, like, to tell me about this, the social and political imagination culture they were born into. But I've never mm. had a guest who was grew up in the same, not only the same town, the same street as me. 
You tell me, Myron, what social and political imagination were you born into? I wonder if, how similar it is to the one I was. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, it was an incredibly complex one, actually. And I think one of the things that, you know, that has fundamentally shaped me is my trying to disentangle you know, that context um, and to figure out my identity in the midst of that, because it, it was just a real weird juxtaposition of a whole lot of things. Um, and I think it's really easy to look at the con immediate context that I grew up in and, and oversimplify it as, oh, it was just fundamentalist. And it definitely, that that is not an inaccurate uh, description at all, but it, it it doesn't really quite capture the nuance uh, because, as you know, we, our little evangelical enclave here in the prairies of Western Canada was incredibly conservative theologically, but it also had like a whole bunch of refugees from U.S. fundamentalism that had come up across the border, but they didn't completely define that either. Uh, so that, for example, when I moved to Virginia and went to Jerry Falwell's university, I was appalled and could not recognize the, the evangelicalism, quote unquote, that they were touting um, because it was so fundamentally different than some of the stuff that, that I was in, uh, raised in. I mean, a lot of the, so we grew up in a, a small town where half, almost literally half the town was employed by the Bible college of this town. And the roots of this Bible college, Prairie Bible College, was very, quite communal. I mean, they, they shared a lot of resources. They grew their own food. They, they all worked together on the farm and like a basically a it communist as commune. Two, two farmers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Pooling their resources. And I don't know if you know this, but originally when Fergus Kirk uh, and I can't, uh, you know, started this at his farm, the town was about 10 miles away in where the, the golf course is now. And what happened is the railroad came through and it came through close, right, right where Prairie was. And so the town moved to where Prairie is, but they were like sustaining themselves completely. And the students, as you know, would, would sort of uh, fund their, their tuition by working uh, because they had a farm, they had a dairy, they had carpenter shop, they had a machine shop, they had a garage they ha had everything i have to say i don't i don't recall the uh the socialist communist <laughs> influence bleeding over too much into the culture when i by the time i showed up in the 70s and 80s but still even when you were there like your dad who actually was my very first philosophy teacher he got paid the same amount as the president yes in fact he might have got more because at that point because the president's uh, children would have moved away and your dad had young children. So he would have got more and that, you know, the, it, you didn't get a house based on your position. You got the house that fit the needs of your family. So, yeah. you know, as you know, there were, there were children, I mean, uh, families that had children that were, you know, eight, nine, they had the biggest houses uh, on okay. campus, not the yeah. president. The president right. had one that suited him and his wife and that was it. So, it was a really weird, it was, it was socialism yeah. without Marxism. <laughs> so this requires a, an ability to reflect back. You have to leave it to really be able to reflect on it. So Absolutely. you grew Absolutely. up in this culture. Now, how, tell us, how did you leave? What was the spark to get you out of small town Bible college world? That's again, a really complex question. Um, I would, I would say reading. Okay. Um, and a, and a whole set of existential questions. I'm curious how that takes you to liberty, just to pause you. I'm curious how existential well, yeah. questions takes you to Liberty <laughs> University. Go on, Myron, I'm all agog. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, uh, yeah. It could just I be mean, young people are dumb. <laughs> young people make yeah, bad well, decisions. Well, I think I think to, to address that one directly, first of all, I did not have any real understanding of what Liberty University was. Thought of it in categories that were not at all accurate. Um, right. Right. And the second thing is, is that because I came out of Prairie and was very used to, and this would have been very defining for me, very used to being looked down upon by the wider uh, secular community, I did not judge Liberty because I was used to being judged 
uh, as, oh, you're from Prairie, that means you fit into this little box. And I knew that not, that not to be the case. I knew that there were really intelligent people uh, who were conservative Christians and who were good people. Uh, and, and this kind of segues into the, the, the original question that you asked, uh, because I, I, I very early on, like some of my earliest memories of trying to sort out my life at Prairie as I was growing up as a kid, uh, involved a, a, an implicit recognition that there were very dangerous people who I needed to stay away from and I wanted nothing to do with. And there were other people who had something very genuine. And and to be honest, as I've told this story before, your dad's name always comes up. Um, okay. Shout out, his... shout out to Professor Norm Backhouse. There you go. Backhouse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because people like Norm and, and my parents embodied a, a version of the faith that I found fundamentally attractive. And so as I got to be, I remember being 17 year old, 17 years old, and and it suddenly hitting me, okay, like you've been kind of just floating now, accepting the the ether in which you move, but you're going to be 18, and you've got to decide now: is this you or is it not you? Uh, and so I actually uh, had a, a question that crystallized in my head that basically said, is Christianity something that that is intellectually viable, and it, can you believe it? And I was really, uh, I don't know, vexed is quite the right word, but I had a, a fairly high amount of anxiety over that question. And so I just started reading, and I went into my dad's library, which was pretty big, and he had C.S. Lewis and he had Francis Schaeffer, so I started reading them. And I had also developed some really good uh, friendships with older males. Um, <clears throat> one was a boys' brigade leader named Doug Bayless. Uh, Scott Mitchell was another one. Um, and I had really deep conversations with them about things. And, and actually, this this boys' brigade ranger got me reading Martin Buber. At, you know, and and uh, yeah, having conversations about existentialism, and I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. Right, um, and so. Uh, I, I started to get very intellectually curious, but as you probably know my history, I mean, the easiest way for me to uh, navigate that uh, context that we were in was was for me to uh, be successful and get approval of people through sports. And there, Not a route that was ever open to me, my friend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Not a route. I mean, I was playing... I was, you know, a hockey player and okay. playing hockey from the time I, I can, you know, some of my earliest memories are learning how to skate. Right. Um, and and so I was reasonably proficient at those things. And so that became the main way that I established my sense of identity and so on. Uh, but this was all sort of like now coming to a crisis where I was like, okay, you need to figure your life out and whether you're going to do this. And so I started pursuing those questions. You're, I, I took that that class with your dad um, and the, the philosophy class, and it blew my mind, like totally blew my mind. I, I didn't, re I always thought that everyone else around me understood something I didn't. And I actually was not academically successful at all as a student. Like I was a straight C student, whatever it took to stay on the teams is what I was uh, through high school and even into Bible college. I always thought everyone else had the answers to the questions that I needed answers to before I could answer the ones that I was being asked to answer. Um, and then I got into that class. And if you talk to your dad about it, he'll tell you, he's told me this story many times. He would come into the class and before he even started to talk, I would have my hand up. And he's <laughs> like, I can't, I can't call on Myron because he's going to take over. Um, but I was like, it literally, it, it transformed my intellectual life to discover that people were asking these fundamental questions about uh, yeah. about justification uh, for our beliefs. And so from there, I went to university and and started to explore these ideas more. Where did Kierkegaard, where did Kierkegaard show up in the mix? Because we're going to talk about him quite a bit soon. I just told you that I started reading C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer as a 17-year-old. And of course, if you've read Francis Schaeffer and the ones that I read were Escape from Reason uh, in particular. Um, Kierkegaard is like the bad guy, right? And and then as I went on and took apologetics at uh, Bible College, I read Norm Geisler and again, Kierkegaard is the bad guy. And 
the way it would always work when I was reading these guys is they would start to explain what Kierkegaard was saying, and I would start saying, oh, yeah, oh, hmm, yeah, I like that. Oh, yeah, I see, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden they say, and he's totally wrong. And here's why he's totally wrong. Like, oh, man, yeah, that's really stupid. What? How? Oh, man. You know? <laughs> and so I was doing that. And then I don't know if you remember in the in the book room, you remember the book room at Prairie where they the Bible college the books. Store. Yeah. 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 Well, they had a little room in the back. I don't know if you knew this, but it was books that they didn't feel were suitable for the for the general public, but they were there. And I was I would always go back into there and often I was told to leave. It's like the, but I would like the Vatican, there. secret archives of the Vatican. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And I found in there this book that called Existentialism colon, uh, the philosophy of despair and the quest for hope. And I was like, oh, it, it, what I'm experiencing, and those are the categories that I also was getting from Francis Schaeffer, right? The, the leap into despair. And, and so it, it turned out this, this little book was written by C. Stephen Evans, who is, for those of you who don't know, uh, he's one of the premier evangelical, well, Christian uh, philosophers of Kierkegaard. Have you told Steve this? Does he know this story? No, he doesn't. He doesn't like, he doesn't like my works. So. <laughs> 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 um, but it'd be interesting to, ha to have this conversation with him. Um, yeah, right, right. <laughs> because he has no idea how strongly he impacted me. But, um, but yeah, so I read this book and it, it blew my mind. Like, I finally understood what existentialism was in the way that you needed to, because that book took me through that. And he talks about Camus and, and Sartre and a little bit of Heidegger, but Dostoevsky, and it was game changing for me. And then Kierkegaard comes along and says, hey, you can feel all of these things and, and, and orient your life this way. And, and here's what makes Christianity the answer. So it was really a nice little, little book uh, for someone like me at that stage. And so this just flipped a switch for me. So then I went to university and in the very first semester, I took a, a course called Existentialism and Phenomenology. Uh, and I had to get the, the prof to waive the prerequisite because I hadn't been at the university for intro to philosophy. But here, here's the moment where I became a Kierkegaardian. We, we read either or abridged version and he gave this, uh, our prof's name was Peter Preuss, and he gave an incredibly good lecture on the transition to faith or the leap of faith, as we sometimes, I think, badly call it. You know, the scales fell off my eyes and I started to get this understanding of how to understand faith and reason together. And so he was talking about this. And so after class, as I would often do, I kind of cornered him and I was asking him all these questions and he was going through uh the the answers and, and it was like really blowing me away and then i just stopped at one point and i looked at him and now i can can hardly believe i did that as a whatever i was 19 20 year old i said dr price why aren't you a christian and he just looked stunned to me and then he just said because i don't want to be and i remember thinking what else should a christian way of thinking do than bring someone to the point where you just say i refuse to it, there was, I have not, like, there was no intellectual architecture. It was just like, I don't want to. It's an existential movement, not a, not a epistemological one. Yeah. Exactly. He got, it, it, like, in that moment, he just said, I exercise my will in a different direction. Yes. But he had, and that, that was when, I, after that, every philosophy class I took, it didn't matter what it was. I wrote a paper on Kierkegaard. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. After yeah. that, that's what it, that's what it was. And uh, even within epistemology, and I, I then discovered in my senior year, uh, Alvin Plantinga in a course on religious epistemology. And I was, of course, as you know, I was enamored of C. Stephen Evans' reading of Kierkegaard. And uh, he had started to explore the connections between Plantinga and Kierkegaard and so that's actually what I did for my master's thesis then later at Liberty. So, Okay. And that was the attempt, to, just for listeners who maybe don't know all the arcane differences in the world of Kierkegaardiana, there is an attempt amongst a certain group of professing Christians to, to make of Kierkegaard a, a sort of an apologist, to turn him into a, a knight or a defender of the reasonableness of Christianity and that kind of thing. 
against the overwhelming uh, cliche, which is that he was actually a, a proponent of the blind leap of faith and the anti-reason and the anti-rational. Uh, but you have written a book called a, The End of Apologetics. So you didn't, you haven't continued down the route of turning Kierkegaard into an, an apologetics, reasonable, rational philosopher, or have you? No, I, no, 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 <laughs> I, I definitely didn't. And the, the great... The great thing about Plantinga's epistemology, well, first of all, it taught me to think very clearly analytically uh, and, to, and, and what epistemology really is. And so I, I learned very good, well uh, from reading Plantinga. But, but the attractiveness for someone like Steve Evans, who, who reads Kierkegaard, um, uh, the attractiveness to uh, Plantinga's epistemology for those kinds of people lies in the fact that he he's fully willing to own that belief in God might not have any evidence whatsoever, uh, but yet it is still reasonable. I moved through that quite quickly, but it was very good for me to move through that. And in the book, I, I take sort of as my point of departure, I think it's Anticlimacus who, who says that whoever invented apologetics is a Judas number two whose betrayal uh, instead of with a kiss is with stupidity. Yeah, for me, that's pretty definitive. And Kierkegaard, as you know very well, makes very, very similar statements all throughout his journals. Can you, can you talk me through it? Uh, what, what do you think was going on when he said apologetics? Whoever invented apologetics was Judas number two with a kiss of stupidity. Yeah, it's a fundamental uh, failure to understand what Christianity actually is. And, and to try to make it into something that, and this is how I develop it in, in the book, uh, try to make it something that is within our rational control that we get to decide. Uh, it actually is not something that's challenging us. It actually is something that's just affirming us. Um, and let me now prove it to you. And so uh, the betrayal part comes from making something other than Christ and his call to us in our lives, his encounter with us, the basis of, on which we believe. And the stupidity is completely misidentifying what it is that you're doing when you affirm that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Yeah. Which is your professor. He got it. He's like, yeah, I've looked Absolutely. Jesus full in the face and I don't want him, which is exactly. exactly the point of faith. It's not, and I don't believe in six reasons why he rose from the dead and I I don't, I don't want to articulate the Trinity. He's saying, no, I don't want what Jesus is offering. And there's no apologetics that's going to do that. <laughs> and there's something about that I, that I find offensive. And of course, yes. like the offensive part of, of Christianity, uh, in the offense to the Greeks, especially as Paul lays it out, and, and footnote to this, or if I can interrupt myself, uh, you know, Kierkegaard is just simply, this is my contention as I read him, simply trying to uh, make sense of Paul's discourse throughout, uh, especially 1 Corinthians, but, but Romans and Corinthians. Um, that, that's really what he's trying to work with there. Um, but the offense is that this is not something we could reason our way to. Uh, and so you will have to, and this is why, why fear and trembling and the, you know, Abraham's heaven-sent madness and lunacy that, 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 Johannes Climacus, I mean, Johannes Dislentio is going to talk about is critical because it is that complete trust and dependence on God for this thing, which then suspends us over 70,000 fathoms of water, as Kierkegaard says. That's what faith is. It's being suspended over 70,000 fathoms of water. If God doesn't come through for me, then this is all a disaster. And that for Kierkegaard is like the moment of faith. It, when it becomes operative is when you are cleaving completely and solely to Christ and, and to God. When your, your whole essential identity is, is at stake, not just, not just a, a set of arguments. As opposed to this calm, rational, well, yeah. let, let, you know, this is actually all well within my control and I could actually bring you under my control too, by giving you arguments that you can't refute. Uh, and Kierkegaard just says enough of that. So, this was the work that you did in Edinburgh. You did your PhD on on the unapologetics of Kierkegaard. No, I did not. Um, I, I actually did it uh, on uh, Wittgenstein reading of Kierkegaard uh, and called it 
Kierkegaard's post-enlightenment subject, the grammar and goal of belief. So, Who was your supervisor for that? It was Fergus Kerr, wasn't it? It was Fergus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fergus, that book. Yeah. He, he, Theology After Wittgenstein changed my life. That was such a good book. He had just written that when I was working with him, and he he did not really know Kierkegaard very well. But there was he, there was a few times in our sessions where he we'd be reading a chapter I was reading, and I was talking about Wittgenstein, and all of a sudden he would like pick up uh, a copy of Wittgenstein and start reading him out of in German. I'm like, hey, like, slow down. <laughs> yeah. But he he would just be very very animated. But it, it uh, I actually started though my first I I was accepted to the PhD under Kevin Van Hooser. Where he had just published is there a meaning in this text and he left after a year and i transferred over to fergus and it was kind of like the best of every possible world for me because kevin was exceptionally good he, he wasn't particularly friendly to my exact project but he had been reading a lot of kierkegaard as he was trying to make sense of postmodernity at that time and he's very very meticulous scholar and then he shifted me over to to fergus who brought in this whole dimension of wittgenstein that i was wanting to develop it, it was it was a really really good uh, process for me. Thank God for happy accidents, right? The the you catastrophe of losing a supervisor. If we believe in God, we might say that he orchestrated these things. <laughs> so tell us about the the book. I mean, the the end of apologetics, which I have to say, it comes up a lot in conversation. And I, I was telling you earlier, there's a, a guy who's who's going to show up on one of these ten episodes eventually, who who first heard about Kierkegaard through your book, it has shown up. It just it pings on my radar more than once. This book. Tell me about the end of apologetics. Where did the where did this come from? Where what's the provenance of this book? The the roots of it are, are in the story that we just, you just drew out of me about where I come from and who I am. Uh, as I started to investigate uh, the question that I I posed to myself as a seventeen year old: Is Christianity true, and is it something that I could believe and could be mine? And that was a very distinct. I was very clear about that as a seventeen-year-old. I didn't have the intellectual categories at all, uh, theologically or philosophically, to to make sense of that. But that is really how I was putting it. Because I, as I said, there were some people who were dangerous people who, if they were right, I don't care. I don't. I won't believe it. Right? Because that is the that is something I refuse to believe in. And then there are other people who had a quality of life who were who imbued the, the, the qualities of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit uh, that is like, okay, that I don't know what to do with. That That is something that is definitely real, and I'm not sure I have that, but I find it attractive. Well, just where did this book come out of? If it wasn't a, a popular version of your thesis, where did it come from? Right, it, exactly. So when I once I got into apologetics and started to learn the categories of philosophy, the more I think, like, oh, right, this is great. We are, this, this is totally intellectually viable. I can defeat all of the arguments. And, and I, I kind of went through about a year or a year and a half of just sort of exhausting reason, if that's a way I can put it, and just chewing all these arguments and, and, and just sort of immersing myself in apologetics. And it just seemed hollow. It's sort of like, you know, as as the description of the Israelites, God says, I gave them uh, what they asked for, but sent leanness to their soul. That's sort of how I felt. But there was this nagging Kierkegaard part of it that we also went through, right? And so as I did sort of the, the more philosophical, epistemological uh, stuff uh, that I did and then shifted into Wittgenstein and I became very aware of post-modernity and, and the critiques of modernity and how Kierkegaard fit into all that picture, uh, I had never resolved this issue of apologetics. And that quote that I gave you was sticking in my head. And uh, the, the, the difference between a genius and apostle that he talks about. Uh, and so though I decided just to explore that. Uh, I had initially at one point in my life envisioned writing a book on apologetics, but that just wasn't possible anymore. Uh, so or maybe not a book on apologetics, but a book of apologetics. This one came out instead. Yeah, which initially I had actually wanted to call it against apologetics. And through engagement with the publisher, the end of apologetics came out. And that, that, that was a much, that captures much better what I was wanting to do with a sort of double entendre, right? The, the end, both in the termination, but also as the, the arche, the telos, whatever. Yeah, the final, the final target. Talk us through it. What is what is the what are some of the key movements here in the end of apologetics for this modern age? It sounds like you were one of these guys. 
a young, keen evangelical who absolutely loves apologetics, devours all the books, loves to argue, is told, filled, filled their head with all sorts. When your atheist friends say this, this is the five things you say against them, and here's the moves, and uh, that kind of guy, right? There is no meaning without God. Yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> all right. Uh, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Ravi Zacharias, who, by the way, I want to talk about in a second. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Like uh, that kind of guy, right? Um, yeah, I was, yeah. So there's, let's pretend I'm that guy and I'm standing in front of you and I'm saying, I want to, Myron, where, where do I go? I want to really learn apologetics. I really feel like this is what I need to do more with my life. What are you going to tell me? Is God calling me to be an apologist? Yes, but not in the way that you think he is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because he wants to live. He wants you to live a life completely in the categories of spirit and and to show forth uh, God's love in the world. Um, the, the key move that I'm making here is that well, truth telling becomes very important, and, and the big objection that I have in the book to the the, the the category of modern apologetics is they cannot tell the truth in the way it can't be truthful because Why you not? can't tell the you can't tell the truth that way because truth is not simply an objective proposition at least not the kind of truth that is transformative yeah. of your life that that embodies the, the grace that we've received in Jesus Christ um, you're so using the wrong tool there has for to the be job. exactly and not only that, it's worse than that because it actually is fundamentally uh, idolatrous um, because you have made yourself into the one who is the arbiter and instead of and grounding it. And this is the distinction between the genius and the apostles. The genius is somebody who is more clever than the, is, is the most clever person in the room and bases his authority for you to believe what he has to say on his being more clever as opposed to the apostle who says, I might not be the most clever person in the room, but this is what God says. <laughs> and yes, so right. uh, this is the message I've received. That's what I can witness to. An apostle witnesses to a truth that is bigger than herself. And the apostle who just delivers the message has acquitted himself well, like has succeeded. Just delivering the message, if you are the 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 uh, opportunity for offense you've offered the opportunity to be offended so you've 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 acquitted yourself well whereas the apologist only succeeds if other people agree with them precisely so the apologist has to have you agree with him in order to succeed whereas the apostle says well you might not believe me but this is what this is what i need to tell you okay i've said it i'm gonna go now yeah right and the apologetic side of the apostle is not in uh, her rigorous defense of the propositions that she told you, but in a life that is lived in the categories that she announced to you. And you can look at her life and say, yes, you actually do believe that. Yes, it really is transformative of your life because you live faithfully according to them. And when I look at your life, I can imagine a world in which what you say is true because I see it lived out in front of me. Yeah, which is Kierkegaard's category, truth is subjective or subjectivity. Exactly. It doesn't mean you generate truth from yourself. It means you are living it as a subject. Exactly. And that one of the things that I really worked out and wrestled with in my dissertation was this whole objectivity versus and or subjectivity and what, what that means. And, and Kierkegaard has this interesting little bit that really isn't made much of in the scholarship, but it really became formative for my thesis. Uh, at, at the doctoral level, uh, when he says that in all of the talk about Johannes Climacus, who is the sort of philosophical pseudonym who does actually advance the thesis that truth is subjectivity, being mere subjectivity and so on, uh, what is completely overlooked is that there is a, uh, that subjectivity at its peak is itself a kind of objectivity. And I, I'm not getting the quote exactly correct, but, but what he basically is saying there is that it, it's completely overlooked that, that if you are subjective in the way that I'm talking about, you get objectivity along with it. Whereas if you are objective, you must sort of hive off subjectivity and it becomes the bogey that, that you have to resist as opposed to uh, saying, I want the truth for myself. That becomes in itself a kind of opportunity. So, so they says that it, it leads to only one answer in the end. That's kind of what I tried to work out. And, and then in the book, I kind of uh, advance uh, 
an understanding of truth that takes that very seriously. And I talk about truth as edification. Uh, and so that what we ought to be about as Christians who want to witness to the to the truth of the gospel is build up persons. And I, and I, I, I use some stuff from, from Gabriel Marcel, and he talks about something being person-preserving, or that, that's how I interpret it. So that, that in our witness, we must, we must take people so seriously that we will protect them at all costs, because uh, we want to build their person up. Uh, as opposed to transform them into people that look just like me, uh, that, that believe like me and talk like me and, and think like me and have all the same answers that I do. Because you have to beat them down. I mean, I never drank the Kool-Aid maybe as much as you did with the apologetics, but I, I definitely had some of that. And I definitely had friends who, who really were, had they had Kool-Aid stains all around their lips, that's for sure. And, I, and, and uh, the idea of like, so much of the rhetoric and the idea, the animating emotions were about humiliate your opponent and silence them and stifle them and beat them down and that was where that was how i was being formed and trained it wasn't liberal secular marxists who were training me it was evangelical christians and and my whole imagination was all about humiliate your enemies and destroy their 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 most deeply held beliefs and how stupid and how silly they yeah. are and it's so dehumanizing it's so you're attacking the subject in order to make some facile empty objective point but you're actually defeating the one thing that's most important about that person right yeah and i tell a story about that um which was a you know a real story that happened to me and actually we were at the kierkegaard library and as you know they have a in in saint olaf uh college at northfield minnesota and i was there on their summer scholars program and i got there one summer and i got there a bit early and there was uh I, I've preserved his identity to this point, so I will continue to do that because uh, I never asked him to tell this story. There was a, someone else who was there who was chair of uh, a philosophy department in one of the top 50 small colleges in the the country. He had a PhD in philosophy from Brown, uh, so, you know, an Ivy League school, really intelligent dude, um, who was described himself as an atheist Roman Catholic, which I thought was fascinating. And so I got to know this person over a couple of days because we were both there early before the main sort of uh, group of scholars would come for the summer. And it was just this guy and me. And so we ate and walked around town. We weren't from there and we had, you know, we, we just did everything together. Uh, and uh, he's a fascinating dude. And he was telling me how on two different occasions he had gone to a monastery uh, for periods of time because he desperately missed his faith and wanted to try to recover some sense of it. Now, he was a Heideggerian and, and a Nietzschean, and, you know, he was into that sort of vein of philosophy. And he just, he desperately missed his faith and felt it was something really uh, important that he needed to recover, but he just didn't know how. And at, actually, at one point, this is the first time I got the call to the priesthood, if you can believe this. Uh, this person and I were in Northfield, we were looking at, in, in we were standing by the rivers or looking over the river downtown and we weren't having a conversation about anything in particular and we were silent for a minute. And then all of a sudden he just said to me, you really do believe it, don't you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you are a true believer. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I won't use his name. And he said, well, you believe born of a Virgin Mary, died on the cross for our sins, raised again, basically the apostles creed, right? I was like, Oh, and then, of course, you you know, as a philosopher, you're not supposed to cop to anything, right? <laughs> you, you don't admit you actually believe anything because then, it, you know, everyone's going to attack you. And I said, well, uh, yeah, I do. And he said to me, you need to be a priest. We need more priests. Okay, so so this is the backstory, the backdrop to the story I'm going to tell. So one evening, the next two people who came were these two guys who had just gone to uh, a seminar at Bethel Seminary a two-week module with William Lane Craig, uh, who had described himself as the hired gun. Right. Where is Bethel, where is Bethel Seminary? Where? What state is that in? It's in, uh, Saint, it's in Minneapolis, okay. St. Okay. Paul, uh, in Minnesota. Yeah. So it was only like 45 minutes okay. away from where we yeah. were. So these two guys were apologists, and they had just, you know, they had, in the book, I call them the shiny new six guns, right? Uh, they had just, you know, load them all up. And so... As you do, there isn't a lot to do in the evenings uh, if you're not in the library. And so we were sitting out uh, in the mosquito-infested back porch, you know, sipping beer and 
uh, you go outside so people who smoke can smoke. And we were just having a conversation and they started to hone in, they started to triangulate. So what do you believe about this? So, and, and I could see what they're doing because I know, right? They were triangulating his position so they could lock in their little yeah. gun and shoot, they right? Destroy. Um, and at one point he started, to re he started to realize what they were doing. And he said, I find this really offensive. Yeah. Could you please stop? Yeah. I'm not interested in arguing with this with you about this. And of course, like I knew as somebody who was struggling with his beliefs and he didn't come at them uh, in a ultra rational way. What can I prove? And what can I not prove? He was desperately trying to find something that he could live and believe. Yeah. Right. And their response to him was, I don't care if you're offended. Your blood will not be on our head. Yeah. 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 And I went off on yeah. them. Yeah. So suddenly I stopped being silent and I just started defending uh, and became the atheist, right? Yeah. The next day he, he told me, because I, I ended up getting so angry with these guys, I just left and went went to bed. And he said, he told me the next day that they said they didn't think I was a real exactly. Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I took as a badge of honor. <laughs> and that's what set you yeah, off exactly into what, the priesthood. <laughs> Well, I definitely did not accept that at that time. Uh, that was literally a call out of the blue. Uh, I had zero desire, aspiration. I, I did not want that in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Uh, could not envision myself that way. Uh, and, and to be honest, I would say it's only very recently that I can envision myself in that role. So, a few years in. Right at some now. point, you just kind of have to give up and admit that this is who you are. So, What do you think old Captain Kirk would say if he saw you wearing your your collars? I would say he's he's dialectical enough. I mean, it's sort of like, I'm sure you know, he had a conversation with Emil Bissinger on his death. Yeah. And Emil said, asked him if there was still salvation possible in the Danish church and he sank back and he said, that question is too dialectical for me. I, I don't have the strength for that right now. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, he, he would be very dialectical about it. And actually this, this Sunday I'm preaching on the, the passage from first Corinthians seven, because it's in the lectionary, um, seven, uh, 29 to 31, where Paul uses his host me, uh, the, as if not, um, so do this as if not, you know, be in the world as if it is perishing. And so as, so be in it as if you were not that. Uh, and that's a very dialectical approach to it, right? And so um, I, I would hope that, I, I think what Kierkegaard would do, he would look at my life and say, are you one of the paid parsons or are you somebody who is actually doing the work of God? Um, so that's been my struggle to own, right? Like to try to live, because that's a very, rigorous way to try to live right where well, i do often do this i used to work uh, uh i used to teach you know how for about 10 years i taught in uh, england's england's largest anglican training college and so i would always have a, a whole crop of students would come through the system and i'd always set them kierkegaard and i always set them uh, attack on christendom actually some of those some of the most yeah. fiery passages and i said look let him let him hit you like let him yeah, sting you. absolutely you gotta got stand there and take the hit he is really yeah. firing something at you that you need to hear. And all these priests that are all drunk on their own priesthood and their own identity yeah, as yeah. guardians of the English culture and Anglican tradition yeah. and all whatever. And I'm like, read this and let him hurt you and see what happens. You're not going to die, but maybe you'll smart a bit. And that's not bad. You need <laughs> but, to. but maybe the part of you that needs to die will. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, it's OK. It's OK to read somebody who with the full fiery force of Christ's love really thinks you're doing a bad thing. <laughs> well, as someone once said to me, can there, which was a rhetorical question, can there be a, a, a Kierkegaardian cult with a uniform dress? <laughs> there can't be, right? So you can't just categorically say, thou shalt not, thou must not, thou cannot. Uh, it, there is always that dialectical tension, uh, that rigorousness, that inwardness where, where and, you know, as you know, he has that category of, of the, the secret police at the, you know, in the in the point of view, I think it is. Uh, and, you know, where he talks about, you know, well, the real the real Christians are going to have to and the real guardians of the faith have to be those who look just like everyone else and are like, you know, plainclothes policemen. Right. Yeah. Um, who might sometimes it, look like an Anglican priest in the. Exactly. Who sometimes have to actually wear the uniform. Uh, and and then yeah. unwear the uniform, but wear it again. <laughs>
so I mentioned earlier. I, I I did mention earlier that uh, Ravi Zacharias. I don't I don't want to talk about his his uh, the controversies more recently that came out. The after tawdry, his death. Yeah. I suppose only tangentially I comment specifically on that. It's more the whole industry, the, the apologetics industry that builds up these yeah. celebrities who then sort of get trapped. I saw them very much as big fish in small ponds. And they'd walk into rooms and everybody would fawn over how smart they were. But frankly, I, I would sit in these rooms. I've been in rooms with those people, including the people, some of them we've mentioned here. And, and I was not intellectually that impressed and this was well before any kind of morality came in and it did it did sort of strike me as like oh yeah this is there's something fundamentally dishonest about the whole industry because it pretends to be about convincing radical intellectual atheists that god exists when actually what it's really doing is encouraging believers that they're okay to still be believers right and that was the audience. The audience was not Phil. I was looking, I was sitting in these rooms looking around going, I know everybody in this room. They're all evangelical Christians <laughs> who are being shored up in something, something they're being reinforced in something, which maybe is fine. Maybe that. And I just feel like I felt like the industry needed to change its its language because they aren't actually convincing a whole army of secular atheists. What they are doing is they were encouraging believers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's that you use the word dishonesty and it's dishonesty that, that I found very repulsive is that they were pretending to be both intellectually curious and seekers of the truth. And they were neither. They were not intellectually curious whatsoever. Uh, and they already they, they actually didn't care any more about the truth. They wanted you to acknowledge their point. So they'd given up the question or the curiosity about what the truth really is. And had said, I know the truth and you must acknowledge it. And it becomes this sociological event of reinforcing identity as opposed to, which is what you're describing, right? Where these people come in and they just need to feel good about being people who everyone else in their, their, their evolution class thinks is, is, is backwards. And they just need to be told that, that they're not right. Um, and it becomes and a, a real part of the culture war, right? The, the, the tribal culture. Absolutely. War. And this is what I totally recognize growing up in Three Hills too. And it, and it sets us up in that, that bipolar us versus them. And it's not about truth at all. It's about politics. Not at all. It, absolutely. It's all about politics, which is what we see being played out for us in the United States right now. Well, Mike Pence spoke at Ravi Zacharias's funeral. Did you know that? Oh, wow. I did not know that, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, these guys, are, sense. Th those, those worlds are, are, are being combined because they are much more of shock troops in the culture wars than they are guardians of truth. That's a, that is a great analogy right there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's not why I was left apologetics because I, I, I got tired of apologetics a long time before Mike Pence and Donald Trump, but you see it kind of come to its trajectory, its normal logical conclusion, really, don't yeah. you? The yeah. The end of apologetics. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that one of the things I talk about in the final bit of the book is apologetic violence. Uh, and uh, and that that is the thing that I'm fundamentally objecting to is in, from an ethical and a political standpoint is is that the, that there is an underlying violence that seeks to dominate and and erase uh, i use sort of levinasian categories erase the face of the the unbeliever uh, and don't see them in their particularity and and for example he, he believed things for deeply personal reasons that he was desperately trying to connect to his meaning as a person and you can't come in and treat them in a one-size-fits-all let me solve this with a few little uh dialectical moves and and uh, hey, that's it you're good to go does violence to his his subjectivity to his person to the image of god you're just absolutely violence against the image of god yeah absolutely so so i'm a, i'm a keen young evangelical i've got my apologetics books tucked under my arm and i was all ready to to, to sign the join the online course for apologetics university at liberty but you have now convinced me god <laughs> so yeah. now what now what do i do let's say let's say you've won me over all right okay i get it I shouldn't embrace the apologetics life. Now, what do I do? 
how then shall I live to use Frank yeah. Frank <laughs> <laughs> Shapers. Yeah. Um, well, you spend your life trying to figure out how to make sense of your life in through Christ. Um, and so, I mean, that one of the problems with your question is it, it, it presumes a, a universal person. Uh, and I would have to get to know who you are to understand what the call of God in your life is and, and where your passions are and, and what integrity looks like for you. Pursue Christ passionately with your mind uh, and your body and learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. One of the things that I, I work very hard uh, to avoid is the idea that I'm against uh, rigorous thinking and intellectual thought. And I'm just, hey, leap into faith and, and avoid the big questions. That is not the way. Feel the full force in, in, uh, of the questions. And this is sort of the Wittgensteinian addendum to this, right? Like, um, the, these questions are very real, and they, you don't walk around them, you walk through them. Just realize that they are a subset of something else. They're not the things that drive everything. And so one of the things that I'm, I have sketched out is a, is, a, is a project called Overcoming Apologetics, which I hope to be a little more practical and less, less theoretical, uh, but talks about sort of a model of apologist as therapist, right? Sort of, you know, looking at the, the kind of approach which I think Kierkegaard embodies uh, in a fairly high degree, you know, somebody who who wants to get on the inside of how you're uh, making meaning in your life and 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 address those issues. We, we believe things for a whole variety of reasons, and almost never are they directly rational. And and so there's there's a lived context that that is part of our sense making of the world. Uh, and so, you know. The, the easiest way for us to start to believe anything or disbelieve anything is to, to live as if it's really true or it isn't true, which is also how I make sense of what we sometimes call crises of faith. Um, yeah, you can live in, you can live a certain way so that in the end, believing in Christ makes zero sense whatsoever. And so pay attention to the choices that you make, sort of the micro choices on a daily basis that, that create the context in which your life will make sense in one way or another. Myra and Penner, thank you so much for joining us. I really love this conversation and I'm, I'm looking forward to having more of them as the, yeah. as the time goes on. But for now, thank you so much. Can you just tell us the full title of your book? Yeah, The End of Apologetics, Christian Witness in a Postmodern Context. Fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to send listeners to if they want to find out more about you and some of the projects you support or believe in? If you want to go to novocommunities.org, that fills you in on a whole part of my life we haven't touched on, which is fine. Um, but, we didn't uh, even talk about Bolivia. That, that's fine. Yeah, that's a, a project that I helped to, to get started down in Bolivia. And I think it's a very worthy thing and uh, it's worthy okay. of your support. So novocommunities.org. All right. Perhaps we'll just have to have you come back to talk about that part later. I'm happy to do that. But for now, thank you very much. And uh, God bless. We'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Stephen. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.